my fear about this viewpoint is that it casts anybody who defends spinal cord stimulation as being a corporate interest, and that is not true. You're listening to the Pain Matters Podcast, presented by the American Academy of Pain Medicine, the nation's leading podcast for healthcare providers focused on providing the best care today, tomorrow, and beyond. Each episode, we'll share the latest innovations and practical applications that directly impact how we care for patients and measure success in multidisciplinary care. Let's get started. Hi, and welcome back to Pain Matters. This episode comes in the wake of a recent viewpoint published in JAMA entitled Corporate Influences on Science and Health, the Case of Spinal Cord Stimulation. The author of this viewpoint is no other than Adrian Traeger, the first author of the infamous and methodologically flawed Cochrane view that positions spinal cord stimulation as ineffective for low back pain. In this recent viewpoint, he states, Corporations could effectively cast doubt over any unfavorable findings by creating industry-funded counter-evidence, supporting researchers to write criticisms, and providing a venue for publication in industry-sponsored journals. As many of you are aware, we first pointed out the glaring flaws of the Cochrane Review in a podcast episode, and then published a commentary and a letter in our society's official journal, Pain Medicine. We were not sponsored by industry to do this. We declared our conflicts appropriately, and this is not an industry-funded journal. There were also many more criticisms of the Cochrane Review in other journals, and Adrian Traeger speaks out against all of these criticisms that were written collectively in his viewpoint. Although we do agree with some of what he states, it's quite shocking that this viewpoint survived peer review, given that his points are not all based in fact. We're here today with Dr. Nat Schuster, our co-author, who is not funded by spinal cord stimulation companies, to see what he has to say. Yeah, thank you so much, Mustafa, for having me back to uh, chat about this uh, viewpoint here uh, published in JAMA. Um, And it's an interesting uh, piece that brings up a lot of questions. I mean, overall, yes, it is important for readers to keep in mind the possible biases um, that any author might have. Um, However, they make a lot of false assumptions here, um, and honestly, some pretty scary ones. Um, They they end the paper uh, by saying, readers should recognize that attacks on independent science are often sustained in repetitive industry tactics to protect profits and should discount these criticisms. They have come to the conclusion that anybody who's written anything is, you know, working as an agent of corporate interests and writing on behalf of the companies. And while, you know, a critic could say unintentionally, maybe that's true about myself or you, but we weren't coming to this. You know, we don't have any spinal cord stimulator industry conflicts of interest. Um, And that's not why, at least, you know, for the two of us and possibly for others as well, that this is not what motivated us at all. And, um, you know, anybody who's critiquing a scientific article, which is part of academic discourse, a reader should not conclude and, you know, authors should not be um, accusing them as as, uh, acting on behalf of corporate interests automatically. 
You know, we need to have uh, the ability to have open discourse with people. And uh, they do come to a lot of uh, false assumptions or accusations, depending on how you look at it, uh, that really aren't in the interest of academic discourse. The assumption that we were industry-sponsored, that is false. That any journal that has any editor that has any industry affiliation is tainted as well. This is false, and it's not realistic. Scientists are not either industry-sponsored or independent. This is a false dichotomy that the authors here create, and this is false on numerous levels. First of all, there's many different levels by which people can be engaged with industry, and you can be engaged with industry on one issue, uh, one part of your scientific path, but then be industry independent on other things. So you can have a dinner with a rep, or you can have research funding that goes to your institution, or you can be a consultant, or you can be a speaker. Uh, you can have received less than $10,000 from a company, or you could be making hundreds of thousands of dollars per year. And those are very different things. And then there's the overall message coming from the authors. And I think that that is so critical. Even people who have conflicts of interest, when you listen to them speak, they can be speaking from a place of independence, or they can be and they can be speaking in a very balanced manner, or they can be speaking in a way that can be very biased. Then they say that, well, the authors had the critiques, the response to their article paywalled. And that's disingenuous on several different levels. On one level, many institutions have subscriptions. These authors were, or the lead author is from Australia, and the journal Pain Medicine, which is the journal in which we published our response, is the official journal of the American Academy of Pain Medicine, as well as the official journal of the Australian and New Zealand College of Anesthetists. Most likely, their institution and many other institutions, if not all other academic institutions in Australia and New Zealand, as well as around the world, have access to this journal. So that is the business model upon which so many of the top journals work is subscriptions via universities. That's number one. Also, there is no such thing as closing off discourse, putting things behind paywall and ending discussion anymore in the digital era where you have the internet, where you have social media, where discussions can happen outside of the context of journals. So I think that that's really a uh, disingenuous critique. Nobody has the last word ever in the internet and the social media era. era. Um, they say at some point uh, that conflicts must be declared um, going in Cochrane channels, but that conflicts don't need to be declared elsewhere there. That would be false. Of course, we all declared our conflicts of interest, and we declared many conflicts of interest um, within our response and other authors in other journals as well. Um, so conflicts of interest do need to be declared across the board, not just in Cochrane, but in any any uh, journal. And that seems like that's where the um, authors of this um, came to the conclusion that um, 
you know, all these authors were industry-funded authors was by looking at the journal articles and looking at what their declared conflicts of interest were. In their conclusions, they really go outside of what the NIH wants, what American taxpayers want, what really anybody wants anywhere by thinking that there could be a separation between industry funding of clinical research. They say one solution would be to eliminate financial conflicts from research. The scientific community simply stops accepting funding or publishing work from industry-funded researchers. And then they say without a venue for publication, those with financial interests would lose their ability to launch critical campaigns in the literature. So the scientific community simply stops accepting funding uh, from industry-funded researchers, this really isn't realistic, and it's not in the best interest of the future of science or medicine. Um, I agree that there's possibly opportunities and possibly there would be benefit from clinical trials being funded by government entities, from being independent from the companies uh, that are putting out these, but I don't know that that's really something that's going to happen in the you know, anytime soon. Um, I want to be able to practice medicine with the most confidence in the things that I give patients. And having the removal of conflicts of interest would, having industry not funding these studies might be able to give me more confidence in these clinical trials. But these are extraordinarily expensive clinical trials to do. They're very complicated to do. And for the most part, government entities are not interested in funding these. Uh, and certainly not the multi-center way, the very large studies are being done. The U.S. government, the NIH, um, they've always said, industry, you guys go ahead and you do these clinical trials. So that is, that is the real world that we live in. Many top journals, uh, you look at Lancet, you look at New England Journal of Medicine, they publish a lot of industry-funded studies. These tend to be very often well-designed studies. These journals are more than happy to publish these studies that are changing medicine. So there are things that we agree about. Um, the authors of this letter state, quote, critics claim that there is already evidence for efficacy. However, that's not what we wrote. What we wrote was, uh, while high-quality placebo-controlled studies of SCS for chronic low back pain are indeed needed. So we agree it is important that we have better placebo and sham-controlled studies. We need these studies, but we talk about the reasons why these studies are so hard to do and there are so few of them. I think that we agree that we are having this discussion largely because of the 510k pathway. We talk about this in our letter to the editor. Uh, they talk about this in their viewpoint uh, that the 510k pathway tells companies that when a predicate device exists, they only need to show that um, that a new device is substantially equivalent to what's already on the market. These are the rules by which industry plays, and industry only can do the studies that the FDA asks of them to get approvals. While I would love to see 
more placebo and sham controlled studies, I think it's unlikely that a lot of these companies would ever want to take the steps needed to have a placebo or sham controlled study with their product. It would be a huge risk to these companies. It would be a huge risk to their employees who would need to give that the thumbs up, their boards, uh, to give this a thumbs up when it would be a risk. And these are publicly traded companies that have fiduciary responsibilities to their investors who would be very unhappy with them if they were to get negative results of a study. So I think we agree. We would love to have these studies to inform our practice. I just don't think that the companies are incentivized right now to act against their best interests and the best interests of their um, of their investors. So I think we do agree that uh, corporate concerns are things that readers of articles should be aware of and should keep an eye out for. However, these authors were incorrect about their assumptions, and we are not all uh, funded by the SCS industry. The predicament that SCS is in right now, is there any other device out there that you're aware of that's in somewhat of a similar predicament? I think this predicament, as you might call it, probably applies to many things in medicine, because we have lots of surgical treatments where it's hard to do sham controlled studies. Um, and so the evidence from placebo or sham controlled studies are few and far between. There's also lots of medications that the placebo controlled studies that have been done for them have been funded by industry and industry alone. So I think that this is actually across medicine closer to the norm than the exception. Um, I don't know why these authors have latched on so tightly, possibly to SCS among all the many things that they could have latched on to. Um, but I do not think that this is a predicament that's unique to SCS or is unique to our field. Okay. And just one sort of follow-up question. This is coming off the heels of Washington State uh, recently approving spinal cord stimulation for their state and uh, L&D workers. How far does an article like this, a viewpoint article in JAMA, go in terms of the opinion that uh, payers may have going forward on spinal cord stimulation, or does it not at all? I don't know how much any one article, any one viewpoint uh, will have, uh, but it's important to have uh, well-rounded discussions from various viewpoints about the literature and about the pros and cons of such treatments to inform policy. So I don't think that um, policymakers anywhere should be relying too heavily on a single viewpoint or a single meta-analysis, but on looking at things that are written by people who are including so many of the really important studies out there. You'll get some viewpoints from people from the interventional pain field and from the neurosurgical field, from those people who um, have more possibly of a pro-SCS approach. And then you hear some critiques. Do we need to respond to every article that these authors write? That's a good question. You know, certainly it's important uh, to have a dialogue that is open to 
different approaches. And my fear about this viewpoint is that it casts anybody who defends spinal cord stimulation as being a corporate interest. And that is that is not true. The authors also said at one point that professional organizations don't have strict policies about conflicts of interest. And that's simply not true. Um, so, for example, our letter came from, we had a podcast for American Academy of Pain Medicine, and then we wrote a letter to the editor for Pain Medicine, which is the official journal of the American Academy of Pain Medicine. And the American Academy of Pain Medicine does have policies around conflicts of interest, where you need to disclose your conflicts of interest for all of speakers. And when you speak at their conferences, that there's vetting of the slides to make sure that the slides before being presented are not promoting any given company. So this is pretty common. Uh, different societies might have different levels of policies about conflicts of interest, but this is very common. They are not without reason for concern because companies uh, do provide financial support in various ways for some of these societies. So it is important that there is an awareness about the possibility of bias and so that people are able to be educated consumers. But to say that there aren't policies around conflict of interest and that there aren't strict policies around conflict of interest is uh, false, probably for most societies and definitely for American Academy of Pain Medicine. They also created this false dichotomy between real-world studies and rigorous trials. And first of all, I don't like that those terms used, those definitions used, or this false dichotomy, and it's not reflective of their uh, Cochrane. They included comparative effectiveness studies and explanatory studies. So under explanatory studies, you have placebo and sham controlled studies, which they did include. Then you have comparative effectiveness or pragmatic studies, which can include real world studies and which can be very rigorously done and they can be blinded. And they, the authors of this uh, viewpoint make it seem as though real-world studies cannot be blinded, and that also is not true. So, first of all, they can be blinded. We recently had the Evoke study, which was a very impressive, industry-funded, comparative effectiveness study, which was a blinded spinal cord stimulator versus spinal cord stimulator study. So, it was blinded, it was rigorously performed, but it was not included in their analysis because it was spinal cord stimulation versus spinal cord stimulation. And on the spectrum of clinical trials, I put spinal cord stimulation against conventional medical management or standard of care on one end. I put placebo-controlled studies or sham-controlled studies on the other end. And then I put the spinal cord stimulator versus spinal cord stimulator studies in the middle, and they took these two ends, and then they removed the studies that were in the middle when it comes to the level of evidence, because you are more likely to get a very positive study when you're comparing a spinal cord stimulator or any surgical or interventional procedure against conventional medical management or standard of care than you are when you do spinal cord stimulator versus spinal cord stimulator, than you are spinal cord stimulator versus placebo or sham. 
but they remove those studies in the middle. And those are where we have so much of our evidence in the spinal cord stimulator space. I also would put more in the middle, the studies looking at spinal cord stimulator versus reoperation, because that's, you know, surgery versus surgery. And they removed that research as well. So it's not that they excluded comparative effectiveness studies. And really the better dichotomy to discuss would be placebo and sham controlled studies versus all comparative effectiveness studies and blinded studies versus unblinded studies, rather than what they state real world versus rigorous. They, uh, they, seem, they seem to not like that uh, people weren't complimenting the hair design enough. And so let's take a moment. Let's talk about, well, what were some of the good things that Hera did and what were some of the bad things that Hera did without, you know, rehashing everything. It was good that Hera did show that it is possible to do placebo or sham controlled studies. That said, anybody I think would consider the blinding part to be, you know, that was a well-blinded study to be a good thing, but that you have to acknowledge that the treatment that they delivered was a flawed treatment on for numerous different reasons. And we can, just to keep it brief, talk about that they did not have the iterative process of reprogramming the treatment to the patient the way that is done in clinical practice. And that that's sort of like if you were to do a clinical trial for a drug and you only choose the starting dose of the drug and you don't titrate it up to a therapeutic dose, and then you were to declare that the entire class of medicines doesn't work if you get a negative study. Also, this was only a study of a single treatment, a single burst paradigm that was not being marketed as monotherapy. Uh, when it is used by that company, it's used as part of multiple waveforms and declaring that you know they conclude that, well, the entire universe of SCS treatments is not effective. You're only studying a single treatment and not studying the other waveforms or multiple waveforms. Thank you so much, Dr. Schuster, for taking the time to break this down with us today. Our next episode will be on Washington State and their new decision to cover spinal cord stimulation, which has historically not been covered really due to misinterpretation of the evidence, as you'll see. Yeah, that is a great episode. I would encourage everyone to listen to that one. We also want to drop a note about a talk by Dr. Zach McCormick at the AAPM annual meeting in March in Scottsdale, where he will be discussing the Cochrane Review, criticisms of it, and their merit. We can't wait to hear this talk. And if you want to hear it too, then make sure to register today. With that, we'll see you next time. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Pain Matters podcast. If you have any questions about the content that we covered today, or if you'd just like to continue the conversation, please tweet us at americadpainmed. That's A-M-E-R-A-C-A-D-P-A-I-N-M-E-D with the hashtag pain pod. If you like what you heard, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review on your podcast player to help us reach and educate even more of our peers in pain medicine. Until next time, I'm Dr. Shravni Jabakala, and this is the Pain Matters Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Pain Matters Podcast. If there's anything we mentioned in today's show you missed, don't worry. 
We take the notes for you at painmed.org slash podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, please consider pressing the subscribe button on your podcast player so you never miss a future episode. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review to help us reach and educate even more of our peers in pain medicine.